0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan, hematologist, medical oncologist, interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And you are in for a treat today as we are talking about chronic lymphocytic leukemia, but we're bringing the patient's voice into this. We're bringing the patient's input into this. Dr. Brian Kaufman, who is a physician, an internist, a family doctor, who was diagnosed with CLL and subsequently formed a non-for-profit CLL Society, www.cllsociety.org to help patients. Uh, he is joining us on the show to tell us his journey, but with that, I'm going to have two amazing experts returning guests on Healthcare Unfiltered, Dr. Liz Bram from the University of California in Irvine, and Dr. Alan Skardnick. Uh, from Novant Health, uh, both are lymphoma CLL experts. And I want them to reflect on the journey that Brian Kaufman had as a physician patient, but more importantly, as a patient who had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. What are the decisions that he had to make and how supported by evidence were they? We are going to talk about Unconventional approach, first line therapy that Brian had, allogeneic stem cell transplantation from the get go. Are there studies? Are there data to support what he did? Do we need studies to support every single decision that we actually make, or do we not? And then we're going to talk about CAR T therapy. We're going to talk about MRD. Is there a role for minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease? detection in patients with CLL, why do we even check it if it doesn't really impact management or impact survival? Important topics, but the most important part of today's podcast is that we have a patient's voice. What we do is all about patients. I have said many times before, and I'll repeat again, we are all current patients, past patients, or future patients. What we do should matter to the patients that we care about. So that's why we have the patient's voice on today's podcast. And before I air the podcast, please support this podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. You could do so by subscribing to it, by rating it, and by writing a brief review on the podcast. Please refer friends or colleagues to it. Hopefully they'll find an episode or two to their likings. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. You can follow me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or Instagram, Shadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. And if you are a loyal listener, you will get one of these famous Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirts. Just you have to retweet the podcast, recommend it and direct message me on Twitter. Without further ado, CLL, and the patient's perspective. All right, uh, folks. Well, here we are on Healthcare Unfiltered. In one of these series I call where patient's voice always matters. So Healthcare Unfiltered, we want to make sure that patients are really um, heard because oftentimes uh, what physicians, researchers, clinicians might be thinking could be could be uh, out of touch with what patients' needs. And we would like to actually bring patients to the table and the voice to the table. So today's topic is on chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And with that, I have two excellent experts with the disease. And the third expert happens to be a patient uh, uh, who actually was affected by the disease, underwent therapies, and uh, leads a, a, an advocacy foundation for this particular uh, disease. So uh, let's start with a quick round of introductions so listeners and viewers know who you are. So Liz, we'll start with you.
1: Sure, my name is uh, Liz Brahm. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, Irvine, and my clinical practice focuses on lymphomas, including CLL, um, some multiple myeloma, and once in a while, some benign hematology as well.
0: Thank you, and you have been on this podcast before, so it means at least I did not mess up. You came back again.
1: (laughs) I did come back again.
0: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Skarbnik, uh, Alan Skarbnik, or what we call SCARBS. Thank you, Chai. Thank you for the invitation again. It's
2: it's great to be here. Uh, I'm glad this one was not last minute. Uh, I appreciate that, uh, but uh, at any rate, my name is Alan Skarbnik, uh, I am the director of the lymphoma and CLL program at Novant Health um, in North Carolina. Uh, my clinical practice is pretty much lymphoma and CLL and CAR T cell therapy, uh, that's why I focus
0: mostly on, and um, clinical research for these diseases as well. And for those who listen to the show, they know that um, uh, Alan's really does not want to be a doctor. I know Brian is this He just wants to own a restaurant, and uh, he promised me he will uh, make me come to the restaurant and eat for free at some point. I'm waiting for that. I really care more about his food talent. So, Brian, how about you?
3: Yeah, I'm um, hi, appreciate. Uh, thanks so much for the invitation, and uh, it's nice to be with uh, my friends. Uh, uh, Dr. Skarbnik and Dr. Braman, it's nice to see you again and be on a panel with you again. I'm a uh, CLL patient, chronic lymphocytic leukemia patient. For the last 17 years, I've had an aggressive uh, form of CLL. I'm also a retired uh, family doctor and clinical professor in family medicine. Uh, and I uh, co-founded the nonprofit CLL Society to help people get the best information, support, uh, and do advocacy and research for the unmet needs in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Thank you
0: very much, Brian, and uh, we'll go over your story a little bit. Um, I guess that the first question is, we'll start with uh, Liz, Dr. Bram, and we're going to go on first name basis here, okay, just uh, making sure that everybody's okay with that, um, except please you call me professor if you don't mind. Um, so Liz, when it comes to uh, forming guidelines, we'll start with guidelines uh, for therapy. Um, how, In your opinion, how involved are patients in some of the decisions pertaining to forming these guidelines?
1: So I have not had the pleasure on sitting on any guideline committees to date, but if you look at right the sheet of names listed, when you look at these guidelines, to my knowledge, it's pretty rare that you'll see a patient listed when they list the names of people kind of who are at the table. It's usually physicians, maybe a pharmacist or two. Um, you know, in the intergroups, we try really hard to bring patient advocates to the table when we're designing our clinical trials. And many of those trials do inform those guidelines and the standard of care. But so I guess in, my impression is that for the most part, the patients and the patient advocates are really involved in an indirect way.
0: Alan, what are your thoughts about patients' involvement in the guidelines? As, as Liz pointed out, I, I believe
2: there's almost no involvement uh, directly on the on the development of, of those guidelines. Um, yes, yeah, some intergroup studies take uh, some patient advocacy to to help develop the study, but you know it's it's very much that. Uh, right, but uh, when the guidelines are being actually developed and the CN guidelines, for instance, or or path or other guidelines, the patients are not involved. Uh, you know, some of us have conversations with groups such as, you know, Brian CLL Society to try and better understand what the needs are. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, they don't directly have a seat on the table um, as far as I'm aware.
0: Brian, you were diagnosed with the disease 17 years ago. I want to use your story to get Liz and, uh, and Alan reflect on what's going on. You were diagnosed, you're a physician, so you have resources, probably more than the average person who is diagnosed with the disease. Um, how much did you know about it? Uh, uh, you, know, you probably had your own patients who had the disease, but how much really you understood the nitty-gritty of CLL
3: And how did you start to educate yourself? So I was diagnosed in 2005. So at that time, as you recall, there was no medications that were shown to even prolong life. Uh, There was nothing that was shown to be particularly helpful at all. It wasn't until a few years later that FCR was shown in some cases to prolong life. There was really no great options out there and as a family doc, uh, hematology was mostly a black hole. Most uh, I, I, I'm board certi- I was board certified in family medicine when I was practicing. 1% of my board exams was hematology, and 90% of that 1% was benign hematology. So you just, you know, if somebody had a blood disorder, you just sent them off the hematologist most family docs did were not involved in working up those patients and i was typical of that so i knew very little about it it kind of you know i had the typical patient even being a physician i had the typical patient deer in the headlights reaction uh, to it uh, which was didn't know much about it uh, and dug in and when you're looking at the literature almost everything is looking backwards you know if you look at a Kaplan-Meier curve that curve if it's 5 year survival data that curve started 5 years ago therapies have always are always improving but it took a while to develop that level of sophistication and it took a while for me to be aware of the importance of clinical trials on my own personal journey so Liz, CLL
0: patients get diagnosed today frontline therapy how do you, what, what do you do for this patient? Frontline treatment, CL on the patient?
1: Well, the first question is, is therapy even warranted, right? Because as of today, we do still have to have the conversation with patients at the time of diagnosis that likely we're not going to cure this. That may change over time. Um, but as of today, I'm supposed to tell you that this is going to be something you're going to be dealing with the rest of your life. And so with most of these low-grade diseases, right, we're trying to, many times we're meeting people caught coincidentally on a cbc right so you're trying to explain to these to people that yes you have leukemia but we might not need to treat it uh, right away and actually brian and i have talked about this i think those are the harder conversations to have the watch and wait conversation um if somebody does need treatment which again i find that that's often there's very few cases where it's black and white this is the time to start treatment so i'm curious if maybe alan's got some tips for me here but um when it is time to start treatment um, whether it's because of b symptoms anemia what, what have you um, i very rarely use chemotherapy at this point in this disease i think enough things have been shown to be better than chemotherapy that um, i almost never use it at this point point. and so then we're having the discussion about the pros and cons of at this point an indefinite therapy of a btk inhibitor versus something time limited like venetoclax with an anti-cd20 And both of them have their pros and cons. And I think it's a very individual conversation. I also find we usually have time to start therapy, right? A lot of times the the indication is evolving. Um, You kind of start to have the conversation maybe a little bit before it's extremely clear treatments needed. So I often find that not only is it a very individualized decision and different patients make different choices. But I find it often takes a couple of visits to have the conversation and say, this is ultimately what we're going to go with. So I often find that we're kind of putting the options on the table and I'm often giving them a couple of weeks to think about it. And then we come back and ultimately make a decision.
0: Alan, before we talk a little bit more into the treatment that Liz mentioned and go a little to the details and have uh, Brian reflect. When a patient comes to you with CLL, can you take me through the process of additional testing and maybe focus on CAT scans? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Do you do them? Do you not? Uh, And then maybe tell listeners about the prognostic factors in terms of uh, what they are and do you do them or do you not?
2: Um, (laughs) It's a large, big question. So, uh... You know, I think the patients who are initially diagnosed with CLL today is a different, um, it's a different setup than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? I mean, more people are going to the doctor and then they have a slightly abnormal uh, CBC and then they go to the hematologist who end up testing and then, you know, have very early stage CLL. Uh, whereas you have people who, you know, show up with lympho- uh, lymphadenopathy and a little more symptoms, fatigue in general, w- w- which is somewhat different than, you know, even when I was in fellowship, a lot of the patients will come are either symptomatic or palpable lymphadenopathy with more, more obvious disease, right? So right now we have a, uh, a bigger population, at least in my experience of patients with earlier stage asymptomatic CLL, right? Uh, so, you know, when I see new patients, I, I usually discuss that, you know, we divide patients with CLL in three camps. It's About a third of patients uh, will need treatment soon, within a year or so, or shortly after diagnosis, or, or at a time of diagnosis. You have a third of patients who need treatment at some point, and you have a third of patients who won't need treatment, and, you know, they'll leave a CLL, and you're going to do a- active surveillance, and, you know, they'll So they have something else with with the disease, not necessarily from the disease, right? Um, And then, you know, as Liz was pointing out before, we have to dissect who needs treatment, who doesn't need treatment, when treatment is necessary and beneficial or not. Right, And, of course, you have the IWCLL criteria, which are very helpful, and, uh, but I, I try to explain to patients, those are not hard lines on the sand, right? It's not because a patient has a platelet count of 99,000 that are going to start treatment for them. I mean, you have to get a trend, how the patients are feeling, you know, particularly with COVID, I've been trying to hold even further, uh, you know, because there's the B-cell component, increased risk for infections... Sometimes treatment is worse than the disease, right? So if patients are asymptomatic, I try not to not to push too hard based on the counts. And there is evidence that you know the counts alone really are not the best criteria for initiation of treatment of CLL, and including the rising immunoset count. It, it's, it depends. I double patients is a moving out of picture, right? And it's several points in a curve to understand what's the trajectory of the disease. But the question that comes the most is. Well, when do you think I'll need treatment? Can you predict it? Uh, can you have at least an idea? Um, and some patients don't want to, to know that. Some patients said, "Okay, I'll come, you know, as frequently as you need me to come, and you know, when I need treatment, I'll need treatment." But the majority of patients want to know, at least the patients that I, I've seen for you know the past decade or so. So um, you know, there are some uh, prognostic models that have been developed, validated. Uh, even in earlier stage disease that uh, use a number of uh, generally cytogenetic markers and staging systems to give an idea at least when it's going to be the time to first treatment for those patients, right? And I think it's important, uh, one, because, you know, patients can plan their wise more or less, right? Oh, okay, I don't think I'm going to need treatment this soon. I can, you know, I'm doing something for work. I'm renovating my house. I have a trip or something like that. Or you know, you expect me to have treatment in five, six years. Of course, nothing is defined, but it's just an expectation, right? So, uh, in general, for my patients, I recommend doing those tests at Obviously, if, if it's like a borderline initial CLL, someone with a clonal count of 5,500, that you know, it's, it's very early. Yeah, I don't necessarily you know push for that, but patients who have you know, this slightly more advanced disease. I'd rather have that information than not, but obviously some patients d- don't want to have it right and that's fine you know it's it's their decision, but what I make clear is that at the point that you need therapy we need that information right because that's going to guide what we choose. Uh, in terms of treatment what I will suggest in terms of, of CAT scans I don't do a baseline for everyone. Uh, if, 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 I, if I have palpable and adenopathy on physical exam, if I have splenomegaly, that's palpable. If I have hepatomegaly, that's, that's palpable. Uh, or if a are having symptoms, or I have abdominal discomfort, I have a chest discomfort, then I usually will request a CT scan at that point. Again, before treatment that's necessary, um, you know, it's, it's less predictive um, for time to first treatment than other tests, 17p deletions, uh, 2 53 mutation, IGHV mutational status, uh, those are more informational, uh, even LDH and beta 2 microglobulin end up being more informational than, than, than what's the extent uh, of disease on a CT scan. So I think it varies, I don't have a, a hard rule for that. Uh, some patients say, hey, I want to know if I have, you know, any kind of lymphadenopathy within my body, and that's reasonable, and then, you know, we, we can request that, and it may put people at ease, but I don't think that, first of all, there's no definition, there's recommendations for that from IWCLL, obviously taking in consideration which, what's the assets in some countries, which is you know, uh, universal healthcare system, different than private healthcare system, different than the American healthcare system, you know, in, in Brazil, for instance, people don't necessarily do that off the bat because, you know, they probably will have to repeat a number of those tests again at the time of treatment. So in terms of cost uh, uh, protection, it's uh, it's important to consider that. But, you know, uh, in our case, in in, in the kind of uh, medical practice we, we have access to, Um, I think it's reasonable to do those tests, particularly if the patient wants to know, right? I think that's the most important underlying issue here. Uh, What is the patient's wishes?
0: Brian, help us out a little bit, because I think that Alan's points are very, very uh, well taken. But most patients, um, they just will tell you, you know, I will do whatever you think is right. Uh, you know, what would you do if you were me? What would you if I if this was your father? You know, it's difficult, I think, for patients to make a sophisticated decision whether they need to check fish analysis or not. I think they will tell you, if you think it's right, do it for me. So from a patient perspective, at the time of initial diagnosis, when they come and they see the doctor, let's say they require no therapy. And for listeners who are not familiar with CLL, requiring therapies means that these patients have some symptoms from the disease. Um, You know, like Liz alluded to earlier, you know, maybe night sweats, fevers, unintentional weight loss, or progressive adenopathy, or things like that that require treatment. But for those, for the one third Alan mentioned that they come in and require no therapy, you're comfortable observing them and monitoring them what do you decide on either doing scans or prognostic factors and these are we're trying to decide
3: whether the disease is high risk or low risk what's the patient's voice for this our approach at CLL society our motto is smart patients get smart care so we want patients to become actively involved with their healthcare team in terms of this and to understand uh, what's going on because Uh, We also say, if you know one CLL patient, you know one CLL patient, every case is unique. Everyone's different. And as we know, as physicians, if somebody comes in and they've got a sore throat, you swab them. If it's strep, you treat them with penicillin if they're not allergic. And if it's not, then it's a viral infection and you just do supportive care. It's pretty straightforward. But in CLL, as Liz and Alan talked about, there's multiple pathways. And there's no one right way to handle anything. And there are no, essentially, with a few remarkable exceptions, there are really no curative therapies. Everything is palliative. So I think the patient needs to get engaged in this. And and it's incumbent on the physician to use their role as an educator to help the patient in terms of that. The first thing is this watch and wait or active observation because there's the huge cognitive dissonance about this. You just told me I have cancer and you're not gonna do anything about it. We've been teaching people, get your colonoscopy. We wanna find that polyp before it you know, gets into the wall of the, the, the colon. We wanna do your mammal before the lesion is too big. We wanna do a pap smear before the cancer is spread. And now you're saying you found cancer and you're not gonna do anything about it. So I think that there's a real educational opportunity for the patient there. Then the next question is, do people want to know kind of what flavor of CLL they have? And that's a complicated discussion, as Alan talked about, because we know statistics predict for the group, but we all know that some people with terrible markers, 17 p deletion, TP53, complex karyotype, can sit for five, seven, 10 years and never need treatment. Are they the exception? They are. But sure, we also know people with all the best markers, mutated IGVH, you know, uh, just the best fish studies. And three months after diagnosis, their disease is taking off, galloping away. So, you know, we have to make that point for the patients uh, in terms of how much, you know, understanding, do they want that projection? And do they want to know which group are they more likely to fall into, though it doesn't absolutely predict for them? Have a different feeling about CT scans. And I think Alan ta- talked about this clearly. There is no routine reason for CTs. If you feel something that concerns you, if you have a worry, if the patient is symptomatic, they have, you know, uh, you know, GI symptoms, something, absolutely get a CT scan. But generally, there's no role for CT scans, and there's even less role for PET scans um in cll it's very rare unless you're suspicious about the diagnosis you're missing a transformed lymphoma or something like that so i think patients need to have this kind of awareness going forward because not everybody's an alan or liz that they're seeing in the community and the knee-jerk reaction for most community hematologists is to get a ct pet scan that's what happened to me i had a ct pet within weeks of my diagnosis did it add Anything to my management? Zero. Just a lot of radiation exposure. So I do think patients need to be involved in these decisions, but it does take more time. It probably takes multiple visits. Uh, And so it's a complex, you know, dance between the physician and the patient. I would also say that there are the patients who say, whatever you say, doc, you know, what would you do if it was your mother? What would you do if it was your father? But there are also patients who are going to walk in, you know, with stuff that they downloaded off the internet and said, "I want this kind of therapy. What do you think of this? Um, I've heard that green tea extract is great for this. I mean, you know, everybody knows. You know, I see smiles there. That you know, patients come in with their preferences too. I mean, it, it's no longer the doctor and the patient in the room alone. The internet is always the third person in the room, and you want to make sure people are getting credible information." and not, you know, real flaky information from so many other sources. Liz,
0: I wanna stick with that topic a little bit because I do think it's, it's a little bit, um, it's challenging and so I wanna stick with it a little bit. So a patient is seeing you with CLO. you know clinically the patient does not require therapy. Are you going to tell this patient I am going to are you going to discuss with the patient, should you get a FISH study for the CLL looking for the 17Ps and the 11Qs and all of these? Or are you going to do that test just as part of your routine? I mean, you don't probably ask the patient, I'm going to check a CMP and a complete metabolic panel. You will check just the CMP because you think you want to know the role of the liver function test and the kidney function. And I could make an argument, you know me on Healthcare Unfiltered, I'm gonna make an argument, you're probably not gonna do anything with the GFR that you get for that patient at that point, but you still do it. So let's be practical, real world. What do you do for this patient walking in the door? Brian walks into your office.
1: Yeah. So it's what's really interesting, and I don't know what uh, you know. Alan's experience has been, I feel like I get a wide range of what people know when they've walked in the door. I have patients who have no idea what they have, why they were referred, and we're starting with a completely blank slate, or I have the patients who have already frowned the CLL society and I already have a list of questions for me based on what they've read. So it's a very different discussion, I feel like, depending on the patient in front of you. In general, I tell people, so I do check it in full disclosure. Why do I check it? Mostly because it helps me kind of triage how often I'm going to watch someone. If I know from the get-go someone has a 17p deletion and they don't need therapy, great, but I know that that's somebody who probably is going to need therapy sooner than someone who doesn't have that. And I might watch them at least in the beginning every three months as I kind of get to know the tempo of their disease versus maybe in the absence of that, I might check at them every six months. So I do check it because I think, and maybe the data would prove me wrong, I feel like it helps me figure out how often I'm, how closely I'm going to monitor this patient. The way I usually present it to patients is if they ask, did you check the 17P, did you check an IGBH, we'll have a discussion about it, but usually at the get-go for a patient who hasn't learned that much yet. I'll kind of present it. I'm going to do some tests that are going to help me learn a little bit more about your disease that will help me figure out how often to watch you, that when it's time for treatment might help point me in a certain direction. And I sort of leave it at that. And then kind of over time, as we get to know the patient and get to know the disease, we might talk about that in in more detail. So yes, I check it. Yes, I tell people, but kind of in a vague way, just because I don't want to overwhelm them with too much information uh, at the first visit, unless they've already started reading and they're asking me explicitly for some of this degree of detail.
3: I'm just going to stick one thing in here that one of the unofficial uh, prognostic markers we advise patients on is when did your doctor ask to see you? So if your doctor says, I want to see you in six months or in a year, you're doing great they, he or she is not worried about you. If your doctor says, you've been seeing them every three months, I think we should move that up for two months or I wanna see in a month. Then there's something that they're worried about. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we teach our patients to watch for is that length of time between, you know, it's one of the, it's not an official prognostic marker by any means, but it's an important marker for patients to uh, understand that you know the length between times suggests, oh, this is pretty stable disease, or uh-oh, something's taken off. So it's just one of the things that we learn that interaction is so important between the physician and the patient.
2: I agree, and uh, if I can build up a little bit on, on Liz's point, uh, you know, in testing, uh, my perspective in, in in terms of the discussion with the patient has changed a little bit uh, uh, recently. Uh, because now that all the tests are released to the patient, as soon as they are resulted in DMR, and that's nationwide. If you order a test, the patient will get the result. Sometimes even before you're able to read it yourself, right? You come at the end of the day and you are getting your inbox, you already have a message from the patient. What does it mean, right? Um, <clears throat> so now in the setting, as I said before, I prefer checking it. I will discuss with the patient why we're checking it. Uh, you know what the results may mean and obviously after the results are back I, I will discuss with the patient what they mean in general you know when I have the initial diagnosis the patient first to discuss this we're going to get and then I bring patients back within a couple of weeks just to go over the results and then develop the plan of how often we're going to monitor the patient but you know the access to to their own information now it's much more automatic uh, that, you know, it's important to have that that discussion uh, a, a little more frequently. At least I changed to have the discussion up front more frequently than just to automatically request those tests. And same goes for CT scans, you know, kind of whatever you're going to
0: request. So. No, Brian, because I, I, view, I don't view this obviously analogous to screening. I mean, in screening, you have a healthy person that you are checking whether they you're trying to screen to detect the disease earlier. This person has the disease, they have the cancer. And what you're trying to do is understand the biology of their disease. So in all transparency, I did check that on everybody and I encouraged it because I felt I will understand their disease better uh, despite the fact that it was not gonna alter my management, I felt I understood the biology, which might help me in monitoring, like Liz said. It might help maybe in future clinical trials. It might help in the clonal evolution. Some patients, they may have, they start with one, Mm -hmm. all of this. The reason I mentioned that is because one of your comments earlier on uh, were that the IWCLL does not recommend checking prognostic factors in asymptomatic patients who do not require therapy. How? Were patients involved in that decision-making? The IWCLL is the international working group for CLL. Are there patients' representatives? I mean,
3: I would think we would need patients if we're making recommendations for their health. So uh, first, uh, I I totally agree that the testing should be done at the time, uh, unless the patient says, I don't want to know. And if the patient says, I don't want to know, they absolutely have to have testing before treatment. But there are reasons to argue that some patients may not want to know. and, And I get that. And there is an economic advantage to waiting, and things evolve. But I, you know, information is going to guide you, and the more information you have, and how it trends, and what evolves, you know, um, it, it's it's different uh, to see if somebody uh, cancer is evolving in a in a in a in a kind of a more random and aggressive way that's an important information point for the patient and their physician. So I think that that's there. In terms of your particular question with IWCLL, my understanding is that there isn't significant patient involvement. I don't know if there's any patient involvement or not, uh, but my understanding is there isn't significant patient input in terms of that. I know generally the Europeans are more advanced in terms of involving patients in clinical trial design and other things. But from my understanding, both in the IWCLL and NCCN guidelines, the patients don't have much input in terms of those uh, guidelines. Um, I've been involved in interpreting those, working with the NCCN on that, but not involved. I, I didn't get to touch the guidelines. They were handed to me as a a done deal, here they are, Brian, could you help us put this in patient friendly terms?
0: All right, so let's go through your story now. You told us you were 17 years ago, what what happened? uh, When did you start therapy? And then I'll have Liz and Alan reflect on that. What happened after your first diagnosis?
3: Yeah, so um, I noticed some lumps on the back of my neck uh, and I ignored them and I thought they were, you know, sebaceous cysts, they didn't, you know, they were soft, mobile, non-tender, they didn't concern me at all. I ordered uh the doctor who treats himself as a fool for a patient i ordered some blood work on myself and i remember saying oh my cholesterol looks great psa everything is good here but you know why you know why do i have this lymphocytosis you know what was going on here so um so next thing i knew i had uh you know flow cytometry and it was diagnosed with cll and entered active observation watch and wait i did have prognostic factors done and uh and they were not good. I have just about every bad prognostic factor. Um, not all of them on day one, uh, but you know, by later on, I had 17p, TP53, 11q, Notch1, uh, complex karyotype, uh, you, you uh, ZAP70, you know, unmutated. I, I could go on and on. I mean, just about every bad marker. So, um, like when I was told that there was nothing I could do about it, I said, well, that doesn't make sense. There must be something I can do outside. So I ran around and tried to find credible information. There wasn't that much on the internet then. And again, there was no treatments The treat. All the excitement was around FCR, but I knew with 11Q uh, and unmutated that FCR, well, I mean, it, even that stuff was already starting to emerge, that it wasn't gonna work. Um, so I, I knew that it was unlikely to be very helpful to me. Um, Ibrutinib was just being discovered, you know, it it wasn't even in preclinical trials at that time. So I thought anything I can do to kick the can down the road. The other thing that's still true, but less true right now is with CLL, because every therapy is palliative. You only get a couple kicks at the can. And, And then the longer, you know, we, we say that most people are going to die with their CLL, not from their CLL. But I remember Susan O'Brien saying, if, you know, if you need treatment for CLL, you're very likely to die from the CLL. And you sort of got one therapy. And when that ran out, there was like maybe a second therapy. And when that ran out, you were out of luck. You know, there just wasn't a lot to do. It's really not all that different right now, except we have much better therapies. But we really only have a couple therapies. You know, so choosing when you wanna start. So I wanted to kick that can down the road as far as I could before I started therapy because the one thing that's happening in CLL, the therapies today are not as good as the therapies are gonna be in six months from now and definitely in a year from now. So if you can wait without putting yourself at risk, then you're better off to wait for most patients. So I wanted to wait, so what could I do to wait? So, you know, a healthier lifestyle, not that I think that, you know, eating a Mediterranean diet is gonna turn around the CLL, but, you know, it can help uh, in terms of not developing any other comorbidities. Oh, it absolutely others. can help. Are you kidding me? Uh, of course, yeah, Mediterranean right.
0: diet, yes.
3: Yeah, and, you know, regular exercise, there's um, some suggestions in some mild cases, some 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 benefit from, uh, green tea extract, um, uh, EGCG. Uh, so, you know, I tried these different things, you know, if Western medicine wasn't gonna help me, I said, let's see what else I can do. Very low risk with my physicians aware of what I was doing and stuff. They they didn't help at all. Um, I developed, I remember I was on a retreat and I noticed little red dots on my legs. And I said, you know, th- those look a lot like petechiae. So again, I ordered, blood work on myself and I was on call that night and I said I got this call Dr. Kaufman we have a critical lab level on Dr. Kaufman and my platelets were nine you know so I I developed how long long after the initial diagnosis? That's about a year after so I developed ITP um, I ended up you know multiple hospitalizations of single digit platelets it was quite refractory Um, and uh, so I couldn't find anything that worked. Finally, a combination of cyclosporine and rituximab, because individually they hadn't worked. I had an emergency splenectomy. I bled internally, dropped my hemoglobin to seven grams overnight from 14 grams. I looked like I was six months pregnant. I I just, it was a mess. But I got, not only did my ITP get under control with the cyclosporine and rituximab, my CLL got under control with it and rituximab as we know is has some benefits in CLL but cyclosporin, again Susan O'Brien had done a paper that shown that cyclosporin it had some at least temporary benefits for some patients this was a time before we had any great therapies so I went for a really radical kind of thing at, uh, which was a first remission transplant allogeneic hemopoietic stem cell transplant there was uh it that was and was maybe still is, except for a small group of people with FCR, the only potentially curative therapy. When so was I that? went for- th- when, when was that? So that was about two and a half years after my, um, cause the, the ITP kept coming back. I was on steroids for months and months. It would calm down and then it would come back. So, so, let, so let,
0: got- let's, pa- let's pause on the allogenic transplant. I don't want to move too much farther. I want to have Liz and Alan reflect on that because oftentimes Brian, one of the things that we discuss always is what level of evidence exists? Are there randomized controlled trials to support, you know, what you went through? So uh, Liz and then Alan, uh, A, are there, I realize the difficulty in doing RCTs and allogenic transplant, all of that stuff, as well as cyclosporine and, and steroids. What's the level of evidence on the therapy that, Brian received? Um, are there any RCTs to support that he received adequate therapy, Liz and then Alan?
1: I mean, I would have to comb through the literature, but off the top of my head, I'm going to assume that the best we have, particularly for allo transplant CLs, we probably have a, some decent case series, right? So what that is, is people say, oh yeah, I had a patient where I made that choice and we put them all together and we try to learn something from the experience. So it's all Retrospective; it's not randomized, and the conditioning regimen for one patient for the allo transplant might be different than the conditioning regimen for the the other patient. So, there are probably some decent large case series, and I'm going to guess that that is probably more or less the best evidence uh, level of evidence we have, at least in a modern era. For for all I know, that kind of before my time. Um, of entering oncology, this was done more frequently. Maybe there were some phase one or phase two clinical trials, but my guess, without coming through the literature, is at best we have maybe some large case series. Doesn't mean it's not inappropriate for the right patient, but that's probably the level of evidence we're dealing with.
0: Alan, any thoughts on uh, the type of therapy initially Brian received, and then I'm going to go to Brian and ask him what kind of conversation he had with his doctor, who told him let's do an allo transplant.
2: Yeah. So you know. The initial therapy, rituximab, at that point w- was known to provide benefit for for patients with CLL. Uh, you know, the initial studies uh, w- with rituximab, single agent, higher dose than what we use with with uh, other lymphomas, uh, um, had been uh, had happened. Uh, the German studies adding rituximab to other backbones uh, uh, were either way or already published at that point. So you know, the, the, the we knew there was a benefit of using rituximab at least for some control of disease, obviously it was mainly being used for, for the ITP at a point which we know it's, it's a good drug for it, but uh, certainly added a benefit in controlling the disease. Obviously for 17P deleted, 11Q deleted disease, it is a fleeting uh, control in general. In terms of allogeneic stem cell transplantation, um, there's no randomized control trials for that uh, in CLL. It's a small percentage of patients with CLL who end up receiving allogeneic stem cell transplantation. As a transplanter in recovery, I've transplanted my share of patients with the, with CLL. It is a curative approach. It's, as far as we know, up to now, uh, the probably the only curative approach, granted FCR for some patients, as as Brian pointed out, perhaps CAR-T for some patients who have to wait and see. Uh, But certainly for patients with high-risk disease, uh, who are young enough, who have a donor, able to tolerate uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant in 2011, 2010, absolutely, that's what I would have done at that point. I mean, not a lot of options available. so, you know, there's no not, to my knowledge, there's not even a single-arm study used as allogenic in transplantation It's all retrospective here, and it's based on our knowledge of how transplants work. Um, before the novel agents have been introduced and available in the market, it happened much more. And, you know, as the advent of novel agents came through and novel agents after that, you know, the, the number of patients who receive an allotransplant for CLL dropped significantly because it's not a treatment free of side effects. It has their own dangers. Mortality is much higher than what we experience with the therapies we have available right now. But even when ibridib was approved and we didn't have venetoclax, and you know ibridib was approved for 17p deleted uh, CLL at first, and then it came to the front line. I mean the questions what do you do when there's progression of disease after that, you know? So I have indicated to a number of patients we receive a Britney single agent, 17 feet deletion, they got a good response, they were young enough. I mean, there was a discussion for transplant. More recently, Lindsay Roker uh, published, and it's part of a big group, uh, you know, that done a part of with Anthony Mato and, and a number of other colleagues, the role of transplant in the recent era of novel agents and, uh, you know, Retrospective study. There's still a role. Allotransplants still work in these patients. You know, before we had pertuzumab and clinical trials, CAR T. You, you go back to the same paradigm. The patient receives a BTKI and venetoclax with a high-risk disease who's young. I mean, what do you do at the back end? As Brian very very, very well pointed out, after recently, it's like you kick the can down the road, but the can's gonna come back at some point. And then what do you do? So summary. Yes, it's 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 an appropriate therapy. It was even more appropriate therapy at the point he received it. Its role has been diminishing because we have better therapies uh, to control the disease coming up, but that's what I would probably have done uh, at that time.
0: Brian, what kind of conversation did you have with your doctor at the time? I mean, it, it, seems, it, it seems, I mean, was he said this is experimental. I mean, allogeneic transplant is not for the faint of heart. It seems, you know, and if there's very little data on what it could do, um, you know, some patients might elect not to have it because it does obviously have its own toxicity. So, I don't know, take me through down memory lane and what kind of conversation did you
3: have with your doctor? Yeah, so um, again, I say, you know, one CLL patient, you know, one CLL patient. So my story is a little different and I'm coming that as a physician, but I'd looked at the literature and when I looked at what my options were at that time, which was essentially FCR, and there wasn't much beyond that. There was some whispers about bendamustine, but it wasn't even as good as FCR. And that's about all that was out there was high dose methylpregnisolone, which, you know, uh, uh, with uh, a monoclonal antibody, the only one around at that time was rituximab. There just wasn't a lot of options that were available. So I was actually the one who said, I'm willing to move my risks up front. I'm willing to take that treatment related mortality. I know that if I do nothing or do some even do FCR, the chances of dying in the next six months to a year are pretty slim and I'll probably, you know, push things down a little bit. But if I do a transplant, I might have somewhere around a 20 percent treatment related mortality in that first six months to a year. But it was my only potential chance for a cure. I'm in my mid-fifties. There's not a twinkle about any of these new therapies. So it was me who was pushing my docs. And here's what got me shoddy. I was expecting pushback. Brian, this is a very toxic therapy. Brian, this is still experimental front line. Brian, you know, you know what? What are you thinking about? We transplant is our hail mary pass. We're saving it for our last thing. I didn't get any of that. They said. Hmm. It kind of makes sense if you're into it, you know, let's see if it may, you know, let, let's check you out, check everything, see if you got a proper donor, um, all of that stuff. And um, I was really surprised that I didn't get uh, pushback from that, but it was me who was pushing for it. I don't remember anybody ever saying it was experimental. Certain, certainly you went against the guidelines. Oh, I, I went against guidelines. You um, the, guide, the guidelines for frontline therapy were not allogeneic transplant. Absolutely. And they were not. Uh, and I was surprised that my private insurance paid for it, you know, that I hadn't had to have failed anything else. I mean, it just kind of, but we, I, it just, I was really surprised at how easy it was. I was expecting pushback. I was expecting for people to talk me out of it. Shadi, but it never happened. It never happened. Nobody really pushed do, back at it. Do you think if you were not a doctor, the reaction would have been different? You know, it's hard for me to know for sure, but I I suspect that that was a factor. You know, I'd sort of pulled together the literature at the time. And I think the, you know, if if the only potentially curative therapy then and now You know was a transplant and if you're in your 50s and healthy and you have a 12 out of 12 donor it just made sense so i pushed pretty hard for it and um i think being a physician added some gravitas to my pushing but uh yeah i i I don't know if i hadn't been a physician i mean I I don't know. I, I would suspect that if you had a sophisticated patient who pushed that way, that Alan or Liz would say, hey, wait a minute, let me see what I can do for you. They wouldn't have to be a physician to do that. But I think they'd want somebody who went in with their eyes wide open. I certainly went in with my eyes wide open. It wasn't like they had to submit. You know, you could get graft versus host disease. You know, I talked to transplanters and they said, you know, there's people alive who wish they weren't. They have such, you know, morbid uh, uh gvhd you know that you know you don't want to go through this but so patients patient's voice
0: could push to adhere to guidelines or to go against the guidelines i mean it's interesting right because i get the sense and i don't know brian that if that doctor said no to the the transplant you would have gone to see somebody else until
3: you get the person who would say yes for the transplant am i correct yeah, I would have pushed hard. Um, you know, if, if I got a couple no's and I might say maybe they're telling me something I, I need to uh, yeah. hear. And uh, I have, I have had other situations where I, you know, push for things, and people say, Yeah, it's not. You, you shouldn't be doing that." So uh, it's. But odds are, but I would say this: the transplant bought me some time, which How, long, me to- how long? How long were you okay with transplant? Uh, Well, I relapsed relatively quickly, but the FCR that I had for conditioning ironically knocked the disease down to where it was undetectable. They weren't doing MRD, but I was in a complete remission. But within six months, the disease was back, the ITP was back, but it took a long time before it became clinically significant, which was long enough to get to a phase 1B trial, of PCI-32765, which is now ibrutinib. So I was just able to barely reach and grab that brass ring of one of the novel therapies. By this point, I had a 17-P deletion, my disease was taking off, and I was able to jump into a phase 1b trial of what later became ibrutinib. And then after ibrutinib, uh, you lasted for how long on ibrutinib? So I got about seven years out of ibrutinib. um, And then, you know, I developed a uh, PCL gamma two mutation, uh, a gain of fu- downstream game of function mutation. Um, and so my relapse was real, real slow. So it gave me some time to plan what the next thing would be. I'm a big believer in clinical trials and uh, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for clinical trials. I have no doubt about that. So then I had a look at different options. And again, I made a move that would be, I'm, I'm very big at thinking outside of the box. Um, that's what you get when you get with me. So rather than going to what was the obvious next choice, which had been venetoclax, I jumped to another clinical trial, uh, which was the uh, uh, JCAR014, which was a CAR-T, uh, anti-CD19 CAR-T, which was sort of the grandparent to cell. It's, it's very similar to cell in its construct. Um, So, which is still experimental in CLL. And now I'm four and a half years out from that therapy.
0: So Liz, it's fair to say that if you've seen Brian after failing ibrutinib with seven years, you would have probably not recommended CAR-T, I presume. Um, Take me through your thoughts into what he chose as CAR-T, because I know I wouldn't have. I would have probably recommended clax, or, I mean, that's, I think, uh, the obvious choice. Uh, I don't know how much of this w- is within the guidelines or not CAR-T. It's possible it is because it was a trial, but take me through your thought process, and I want to hear from Alan, his reaction to the CAR-T that was received after allo on ibrutinib.
1: Yeah, it certainly wouldn't have been the first thing that would have entered my mind. So we have someone who... um I presume still has a 17p deletion, right? So one of the things is not all we had talked about. You know, do you check these prognostic markers up front? And it sounds like most of us are in agreement that we do. Um, you certainly want to know them before you start therapy. And I do think it's important to recheck them um, prior to each line of therapy, since it can evolve. But I'm going to make the assumption that there's still um, an aberration TP53. Um, so. Yes, I think my first instinct would absolutely been have gone to some sort of venetoclax-based therapy, whether that be um, technically on FDA-approved at that point would be rituximab and venetoclax. We could have a discussion about how important the anti-CD20 is, but that would be the, the um, FDA recommended therapy. I think there's a lot of combination therapies available at this point in time on clinical trial, right? Whether that be kind of these newer non-covalent BTK inhibitors um, with or without. Clax, And so had there been a trial like that available, I certainly would have brought that up. I don't know that I would have jumped to offering a CAR or cell therapy trial at that moment. I think my th- rationale, particularly at that time, right? So I- in general, as we talked about, CAR T cell therapy is not FDA approved for CLL, although we have a lot of experience with it in other lymphomas. It's FDA approved in deal with diffuse large B cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, and, and mantle cell, which in some times, in some cases, mantle cell can behave similarly to CLL, but we don't have a, a, an FDA-approved CAR um, for, for CLL, and we had probably have to double-check exactly when you know AxiCell got its first approval, but we probably had zero FDA-approved CARs for any indication at that particular point in time. Um, so I don't know that my instinct would have been to offer a cell therapy on a clinical trial at that moment, particularly because we would have had I think that would have been relatively soon after the FDA approval of venetoclax, which we know is an excellent drug, uh, both in patients with uh, TP53 aberrations and works well after BTK inhibitors. So we would have had really excellent data for venetoclax. And much like I think Alan had mentioned earlier, right, like you're always sort of thinking for indolent diseases, I'm often thinking about what am I doing today? And then for many patients, I'm thinking what is my next thing, right? Because as we talked about, I'm supposed to tell people that this is, they're unlikely to be cured from this. And particularly if somebody is in their 60s with no comorbidities, I'm going to treat them today and I'm probably going to have to treat them four, or five, six years from now, too. So I'm thinking about what's today and what's the next thing. So probably my rationale at that moment would have been let's use the Venetoclax now because four, or five, six years from now, who knows where we're going to be in terms of the cell therapy technology. So that probably would have been my rationale at the moment is not to say cell therapy is off the table, but thinking maybe that's my next bullet down the line and use the venetoclax now. But I'm curious if Alan would have done something different.
0: Yeah, and and uh, I wanna, after this topic, I wanna move to MRD and Poisson's voice. So we're gonna leave time for that. But Alan, uh, give me your thoughts on the CAR in the situation.
2: I will, before I do that, I just wanna double check myself perhaps correct because as Brian was talking, the transplant your mind kind of came back. Uh, there were at the time already published a couple of phase two single-arm trials for allo in CLL, just, just to make it clear. Uh, so going back to this, um, to this uh, topic, I think my paradigm is a little different than that. Um, what I usually say is that the best treatment for patients with high risk CLL is very likely to be a clinical trial. If there is a clinical trial that's, a, that's available, number one, two, that's well designed and it does make sense, oh. right? So um, I think if Brian had come to me at a point where he had received an allogeneic stem cell transplant, had the relapse after that, had Ibridinib, which at that point is probably the best drug we had available, had some control of disease, and then had a progression, you know, uh, 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 the data for Halvanita Clax would have worked in that situation is is, is almost is almost zero. I mean, we, we don't have that particular situation, right? We, obviously we have post ibrutinib, more this like retrospective, that's not how the drug was studied in clinical trials at that point. This, just, there is some prospective data now, but at the point, like s- small retrospective series were not even available at that point. So I would have questioned how venetoclax would have worked in this situation. And if you had came, come to my institution and I had a CAR T-cell trial available for high-risk CLL, I 100% would have recommended that at that point. Um, I, I have no doubts about that. Uh, but, but that's my take. Right, I mean
0: that's that's, that's well, on, a clini- on a clinical trial. On a clinical trial, you're comfortable with that,
2: correct? Yeah, yeah. on a clinical. I mean, there's no commercial, commercially right. available, right, uh, CAR T cell for, for that. But it ha- if I had an available uh, 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 clinical trial at that point that included CAR T cell therapy for someone who had high risk disease, I w- I would have recommended that. That does not exclude the possibility of the patient receiving Venita Clax after should that have failed, right? I mean, it's a commercially approved drug if, if you were already at that time. So, you know, but, but that's my take, that's my bias. I, I think that in, in, in situations that may be a little bit of a data-free zone, which is this case, you know, I think the opportunity for clinical trial is, is appropriate. Uh, is vanitoclaxin appropriate? No, 100% not as well but uh in this situation i think my my bias would be towards a clinical trial either with a novel combination or a CAR-T that he had available i think the proof is in the pudding right i i believe you've been in remission since you had your CAR-T cell therapy and you've never received venetoclax right so uh it's an option and i i hope it doesn't recur but it is an option for you if it does still there and potentially other combinations now with non covalent BTKIs with venetoclasamine. As you said, the longer you can hold the disease from a novel treatment, the higher the chance of you having a better treatment at that point, right? So if you have six, seven, eight year long remissions, what you're gonna receive is gonna be better than what you have today, right? So um, I think that's, that's my treatment paradigm for the disease. Uh, you said you're going to go into MRD, how yeah. <laughs> much more time you have. And, and l- well, let me just say, I, I'll just do, I want to do
0: just five, five to seven minutes. I, we started a little bit late. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Brian. I'm
3: just going to say one thing. This is one of the mottos that I try to teach patients about when they're dealing with CLL. There's two things that I think this illustrates. First is it's like a chef's team You got to be thinking, and Liz talked about this, two steps ahead. It's not just what your step is, what's your next step. And for me, I thought, I have this CAR-T, it's a phase two trial. I'm sure I'm gonna get the CAR-T. I'm, I'm not gonna be randomized to something else. It's open now. There was 40 spots in it. I was patient 36. There had been one death early on. I thought, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I can always do VAN. But if I did VAN and I got a couple of years out of that, the CAR-T may not be around, who knows what's going on. So that was one. The other is that you have to make life-changing decisions with incomplete knowledge and conflicting advice. You know. I will tell you that not, you know, I'm a different kind of patient, and I admit that. And uh, that my trial doctor, who put me on the PCI three two seven six five, definitely wanted me to do CAR T and do another trial. My local hematologist absolutely wanted me to do ban. So uh, here I am, two top CLL docs giving me. 180-degree opposed decision. You know, I'm I'm a physician, and for me, it was very stressful because I got two docs who I deeply trust and have forgotten more about CLL than I've ever known, giving me conflicting advice, and I have to make that decision. And that will happen, and I think what we just saw happen here a little bit with Alan and Liz was there's conflicting opinions about how to go forward, and that's not unique to me. That happens all the time in CLL. I I want
0: to be respectful of time, but I cannot let you go without talking about MRD a little bit. We we started late, I promise. But but the reason, because MRD is so much about it, and I need the patient's voice on this. So, Alan, what what is minimal residual disease? Um, And again, you know that many people say, well, why check it? It doesn't really affect anything I would do. It doesn't affect any treatment. It doesn't tell me if I'm going to live longer. So, what is MRD, and do you check it? And then I want to ask Liz if she checked it, and then I want to get Brian's opinion about the guidelines. And does he want to check his MRD on himself?
2: Okay. Uh, so, let me disclose that what I'm going to say is a very, very personal opinion based on my view of the data. Uh, so, uh, but just explaining minimal residual disease. Is that um, at a deep molecular level, there's no evidence of circulating clonal cells associated with the disease at the level that a test can detect. It doesn't mean there's no disease. It means that at the level that a test can detect, there's no evidence of disease, right? So currently the the, the deepest is a t- one cell intended to minus six it will be with next generation sequencing. That's the deeper uh, commercially available uh, uh, um, method to check for minimal residual disease in CLL. We don't call it negative, we call it undetectable, right? I mean, I think that's the best nomenclature for it. Now, do I check it? Yes, when I use finite fixed duration therapy. Um, there is, in my, in my opinion right now, enough data uh, to suggest what is the at least prognostic value of MRD being positive in patients who particularly receive venetoclax-based fixed-duration therapy, both in frontline and in relapsed refractory disease. You know, uh, in Murano, the patients who had an earlier relapse after discontinuation, that's the relapsed refractory data for two years of Ven with rituximab for six months, but the patients who did present an earlier relapse after discontinuation of therapy were the patients who presented high MRD positivity at the end of treatment. Those are the patients who, within a year of discontinuation of treatment, had earlier relapses. Same thing with CLL-14. The patients who tend to have earlier relapse of disease um, are those patients who have MRD positivity at the end of treatment. So uh, so first of all, there is a prognostic and predictive value of using that particular in fixed duration therapy. This is not something I check in patients with calibrinib or brinib When it's continuous duration, the rates of MRD undetectability in those patients with that therapy is low, right? We know that patients generally have partial responses and don't have complete responses with undetectable MRD. But with venetoclax, particularly if you're using obinutuzumab together with it, those levels are high. There's more recent data from CLL-14 using um, you know, different time points in checking uh, uh, MRD um, detectability or not, checking at cycle seven and then again at cycle 12 and patients who had positive MRD at cycle seven, half of those patients had negative MRD at cycle 12, half of the patient or decreased or negative MRD in cycle 12, half of the patients had progression of their MRD at that point. So um, you know, uh, if a patient had improvement for cycle 10. 7 to 12 and, you know, deepening of the level of the MRD positive to level that's almost negative or not, you know, it's arguable that these patients may benefit from a couple of additional months of venetoclax and checking again at that point. There's no solid data for that, but it's an argument that one can make. And on the other hand, if there is progression of the MRD positivity to a higher level, even though there's no clinical progression, you know, I don't believe there's a, a place to continue venetoclax at that point. I mean, the disease is kind of progressing at a molecular level already on that, on that medication. And I can tell the patient, listen, I'm gonna follow you more closely because there is a possibility that you're gonna have a clinical relapse within a year. If you're gonna need treatment or not, it's a different discussion um, at that point. So I think it's at least informative and predictive in fixed duration therapy at this point uh, in, in in continuous therapy, I don't think there's a role. There are new clinical trials doing MRD guided therapy, which I think that's the direction the field will go to with fixed duration therapy, particularly with novel combinations, kind of trying to understand the length, the needed length of therapy for those patients to derive the, the maximum benefit from this treatment. Is it a year, is it two, is it three? I think that's still information that's still being studied and we should have in a couple of years and that may change the way we treat it. So, you know, not every patient needs it. And I, I do have a, a very strong belief that infection treatment is to some extent beneficial. So for instance, a patient who received CAR uh, I would be concerned of when the disease will relapse and I would check minimal residual disease at some point and monitor that. Because in general, that will flip before the clinical progression. And if it does flip, then have to sit down and start thinking what's going to be our next step. I mean, in in your particular situation, for instance, that would be my opinion.
0: So, Liz, um, the counter argument to this is um, if we check the MRD on Brian and he flips and he's feeling well, it's not going to affect management whatsoever. So why even check it?
1: And to be honest, that actually is a little bit my bias. I'm not gonna say that I never check it, but um, and I, I will agree with Alan that it can definitely be prognostic, but I don't know what to do with it right now. Um, you know, I, I've talked to actually a bunch of colleagues, and this is you're gonna this is another topic where as Brian says, you're gonna get a few different people in a room and you're gonna get a few different um get a few different perspectives. So I if at some point someone shows me data that, you know, as as we talked about watch and wait, right, part of the reason we watch and wait as, as of today, right, coming in early, the studies we have read out now doesn't improve overall survival, right, so we're just sort of introducing toxicity sooner, so that's the argument for watch and wait, and I sort of feel as if maybe a similar argument could be made here, I don't have data today that treating at the point of MRD positive relapse, is going to improve the outcome overall versus waiting say two three more months and then the white count goes up and then it's more clinically apparent am i going to so i actually don't check it all that often essentially for that reason um perhaps at some point we are going to have more studies where we are going to treat at the point of mrd positivity and you know that then i'll have data to go on one thing i just want to mention because i suspect we'll have a few patients who do listen to this, that MRD can be checked both in the peripheral blood and the bone marrow. Um, They go together about 70% of the time that if we can't detect it in the blood, we wouldn't be able to detect it in your bone marrow either. Um, uh, This is maybe a bias. I sort of feel like maybe I trust it a little bit more from the bone marrow than from the blood, but then of course you have to have a frank discussion with people about how you're gonna do a bone marrow biopsy, which otherwise maybe you wouldn't be doing. I think that the conversation I have with I actually wonder if it's actually going to be more helpful in um, currently what's indefinite therapy, right? Because um, it is indefinite. If we look at how um, you know TKI therapy and CML has evolved, right? And there is a cohort of patients where you know we can stop if their bcr able is undetectable, and they can get a couple of years off therapy. So I wonder if there will be a cohort of patients who you know achieve an MRD-negative CR from their BTK inhibitor. And maybe they'll still get seven years out of their BTK inhibitor, but not have to take it the whole time. So I actually will often bring this up with my patients who I'm starting indefinite therapy and kind of say that, you know, right now I'm supposed to tell you this is, um, you know, basically until it stops working or you have side effects, but there may be some testing we can do that's going to evolve over time that might tell us that we can stop sooner. And the few times that I've actually chosen to test MRD have often been in cases where somebody was on therapy and actually wanted to take a break. And we were actually kind of checking MRD to decide if we could feel more comfortable taking a break. And I think um, a lot of the studies that are going to read out over the next couple of years, like for example, Captivate, right, has cohorts both looking at fixed duration and MRD guided therapy. Um, I think it's going to shine a lot of light on this in the next couple of years, but I'll be frank that no, I don't routinely check it because at this moment, other than maybe I can make the argument that I'm gonna follow people more closely if they're MRD positive, I'm not sure I'm really gonna do anything with it. And I just feel like the disease is just gonna declare itself in a few months anyway.
0: Brian, so uh, you're the patient, you have the final say obviously in this. Clearly you're seeing some controversial uh, thoughts, uh, um, discordant thoughts. I mean, one of the fears, obviously, the, the fear of checking it MRD is that somebody uh, who's a thought leader who does CLL lymphoma all the time, like Alan, when he checks an MRD, he is comfortable not intervening early on. He knows it's prognostic, but not everybody is doing CLL lymphoma all the time. So the fear obviously that others might react on an MRD positive relapse without clinically overt disease. So in the absence of data to show intervening early on is going to help patients. How did you make the decision? Are you checking your MRD? How often? How do you guide other patients with this? And that's, that's going to be the end of the podcast because
3: right now, I know it's getting late on the East Coast. Uh, Well, 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 thanks for that question. First, I I like the term measurable residual disease instead of minimal, because I think it's more accurate. So that's what we push for, and we'd like to see that nomenclature changed. And I agree, undetected rather than negative. I think it's the proper language to use. And I think it's important to know what level you're going to. Um, So, um, again, I think this is just very similar to the prognostic and predictive testings we talked about at the beginning. For some patients, they're going to want to know that, oh, you know, I'm MRD positive again. I'm going to have to make a decision down the line. It's, you know, probably sooner rather than later. That's going to be helpful to me. Uh, It doesn't mean that I need treatment today or tomorrow. I would also argue that the other advantage is, uh, obviously, in clinical trials, but there's a push. The push has always been in Liz's direction is we, we should wait for therapy until we need it. But there's... Some suggestion that maybe when the clone is small, before it's mutated, while we have a small burden of disease, then it can be safer to use a lot of these drugs like venetoclax where the tumor lysis syndrome risk would be lower. But also there might be a little less risk of Richter's and other problems developing if we're treating a smaller burden of disease intervening earlier. And the only way we're gonna find out about this is if we start checking patients and following them and seeing what's going on. So again, I think this is a shared decision between patients. My decision is that I check it. I was in a clinical trial. So for the first couple of years, it was being checked every six months. And I just sort of continued along that basis is that I check it every six months and see where it's at. And I think it's important, You know, it helps me guide what I wanna do, where I wanna be. And there's so much other things that are going on that if you know that you might have therapy in six months to a year, that now makes a difference is when am I going to get vaccinated? When am I going to do other things? Because, you know, there's 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 so many pieces in the puzzle, our immunocompromised part of it is such a big piece of it. So I think the only way we're going to get comfortable with MRD is, is doing it more often and understanding where it fits in. At this point, we really don't know. I think Alan's point is, it's clear that if there's an we know, for example, with chemoimmunotherapy, that if people get to MRD or in a complete remission after four sessions of four round cycles, they do as well. They don't need the extra two. Is that going to be true in Venn? Maybe. Let's find out. You know, can we stop it early? You know, will it make a difference? We're only going to find this stuff out if we start looking at these things. So I- I'm I'm interested. I- I'm I'm data hungry and I want to know what's going on with me and I want to know what's going on with the community that I'm in so I'm big on it but I understand the other sides and if a patient says I don't want to know I'm just going to sit there and worry then that's I'm concerned but it's you you know
0: you're assuming they're going to worry though
3: yeah They're going to assume that they're going to worry. It's the same if you do the 17P. Is the patient going to worry? You have to have a discussion with them. Just because you have 17P at time of diagnosis doesn't mean that you're in trouble, that I'm going to treat you today. So, you know, it does involve more work, you know. Keeping the patient in the dark involves less work for the doc, but it's not the right way to go. Right. Well, um,
0: you just made me think of a podcast. I'm definitely going to talk about shared decision-making because um, I tend to believe that it's, we're asking too much of the patient to make decisions in area that is completely sophisticated and even thought leaders and experts don't agree on. To put the burden on the patient is a little bit too much, in my opinion. That's a different podcast, but I think if you come and ask me to make a decision whether I should have a you know, a cardiac cath or not. And I'm, I'm not even an expert. It's difficult for me. I'm going to have to trust the cardiologist. Tell him, you know what? If you think it's right, I'll do it. If you think it's wrong, um, I won't do it. Different podcast. But before I let you all go, thank you so much for doing this. Any last thoughts? Alan, last thoughts.
2: I know this was very, very enlightening as usual. I mean, Brian, it's always a pleasure having you on the table and getting your your perspective as as a, uh, a well informed patient uh, beyond being a physician and you know it's it's always important to readdress the way we think think things you know and the way we treat patients and uh, in addition I want to congratulate you for for all the excellent work you've done with the CLL society and continues to do with the CLL society but. And and I agree with you too, Shari. There's things that are very complicated that doctors don't agree with. It's hard to have patient involved in in the decision there. Um, And people think, physicians think differently. I tend to think that the more information you have to make decisions on how to monitor patients, decide for the future, treat patients, supportive care, et cetera, it's beneficial to the patient. you know, even MRD is an example of that. We don't need to act on it, but you know, I think it's important to know. In some instances, uh, you know, guidelines are what they are. They guide you. They are not uh, mandatory. They are suggestion. Uh, and you know, if you're treating a disease that you understand deeply, uh, physicians are free to make their decisions and to understand how they will provide care for their patients. Um, so.
0: That's my final thought here, Liz. Final
2: thoughts.
1: Well, it, it, I didn't bring this up because it didn't come up organically, but um, I recently had actually experience where I had a family member um, a couple years ago get actually get diagnosed with CLL. So I got to watch someone who doesn't have a medical background. Um, go through the experience of becoming an informed patient, which was a really interesting thing to witness firsthand. And I think one thing just to point out, and you know, thanks to Brian and the CLL Society and a few of the other, um, like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and Lymphoma Research Foundation, there's a lot out there for patients. And so it is really amazing to watch someone I know, my own personal patients kind of go through being, become start as CLL novices and almost become like personal CLL experts in the matter of, you know, six months to a year as they get the diagnosis, they learn about it, they jump onto different patient webinars, they go to talk to their physicians. Um, It's to the point where I actually have a couple of patients that I always send my my trainees or my fellows to go see, because I feel like actually that patient's going to probably teach this trainee more about CLL than than even I could. Um, So it's really amazing that even in this disease that in many ways can still be very confusing, that um, has a lot of nuances that there is a lot of disagreement even along amongst people who know the data very well, that there's really wonderful mechanisms out there to for the patients who really do want to part, there are some patients who still just kind of really do say, you know, whatever you say, doc, and they, they don't want that burden. Um, but for the patients who really do want to be informed partners in decision making, there's a lot out there to help them. Um, really become empowered to have strong conversations with their physicians about their disease. And and I guess I'll also just put a shout out to the power of second opinions. I have to admit that early in my career, um, I did get a little um, intimidated when people would go out and get second opinions. And um, I'd say that my view on that has completely changed because it's always important for the patient. And I I can't, I can't think of a time that I didn't learn something from the patient going to get a, a second opinion. So, um, I guess
0: those are my closing thoughts. Brian, final thoughts, and maybe as you
3: conclude, tell us uh, how people can reach you and CLL society. Sure, well, Shadi, first, thank you so much for recognizing the importance of the patient and the patient perspective and the patient uh, journey in this. Uh, I, I have three biases, and this, if you heard my story, are based on my own personal experience. And the first uh, a bias is that I think it's critical to have expert care um there's a survival advantage to seeing experts that there's just a paper out of ASCO again that showed this and there's been papers even before the targeted therapy era about that so getting a second opinion having an expert as part of your team they don't have to be your primary provider but I think that that's two number two and Liz started with this off the bat is targeted therapies it's hard to call them novel therapies when they've been around as long as they have now but targeted therapies for almost everyone and I would probably say for everyone but I understand the argument for almost everyone are the best kinds of approaches uh, to uh, CLL and the third is if it's appropriate clinical trials are often your absolute best choice um, at all stages of the disease including even frontline let's go so in frontline because we have great therapies now in frontline but certainly if you've relapsed those are the the best therapies The message that I give to patients is the one I talked about before is the one thing we know for certain that every doctor will agree on is whatever therapies we have today are going to be better in a year from now. So, you know, if you can wait and those that are going to be better in a year from now are mostly in clinical trials right now. So, you know, having an expert on your team, using targeted therapies, using uh, uh, the clinical trials when appropriate being smart about your choices and, you know, just planning ahead. I think all makes me very optimistic about the future uh, for uh, CLL management. I'm I'm excited and I'm just trying to kick the can down the road to whenever I need my next choice. Yeah. I'm glad you're doing great. And they
0: and can find you on
3: www.clsociety.com. CLLsociety.org. .org because we're a nonprofit CLL society. CLL society, all one word dot O-R-G. Yeah. Thank Thanks so much. I
0: really appreciate it. I know we're taping this on a, it's getting late on the East coast and uh, thank you so much. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you tuning in for today's podcast. And uh, um, uh, I wanna thank you for supporting supporting it by rating it, by uh, making sure that uh, you recommend friends and colleagues, you can subscribe to it, you can uh, let your friends know about it and write a brief review. I really appreciate all of this. You can watch all of these podcasts on my Healthcare Unfiltered uh, 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 YouTube channel. You can always uh, let me know any recommendations you have. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by um, Morgan Housel. A doctor's goal is not just to cure disease. It's to cure disease within the confines of what's reasonable and tolerable to the patient. Until next time, take care.